Amedaena Salinas, software engineer and host of the Women in Tech show, a podcast where we talk about what we work on, not what it feels like to be a woman in tech. For more information about the show, go to wit.fm. Startups can get funding in different ways. Susan Preston, managing partner at Sea Change Fund, explained how startups can get funding from angel investors and venture capital. We talked about what the differences are and how to evaluate companies before deciding to invest in them. Susan also talked about her first investments in the late 90s and what she has learned throughout the years. Susan Preston, welcome to the Women in Tech show. Happy to be here. Today we're going to talk about various topics, mainly focused around investment and the Sea Change Fund, which is where you're currently working at. First, I want to begin by understanding various concepts around investment, like angel investors. What is an angel investor? So an angel investor is typically someone who is an individual of wealth that has a certain amount of disposable income that they choose to invest in very early stage companies that are high risk. But in theory, the high risk comes with high return as well. And so they're investing in this company is just coming out with its minimally viable product, just starting into a market with whatever gadget they're making and selling or software as a service that they're doing. And the angels come in at that time and invest at this high risk time period of the likelihood of failure or success and help the company grow to the next stage. And that money is typically used to help finalize the development of a particular product, to fill out the team, to start sales and marketing, lots of different functions that can be utilized with angel investment dollars. What are some characteristics of high risk companies? Well, any company that is just starting out and entering into a market with what they believe is a competitively differentiated product and that will meet a market need or market pain is a high-risk investment because they are very early. They aren't at 20, 30 million in sales and growing. They're at zero sales. And so they've got to figure out how to get the market's attention get the market to understand the value proposition for their product so that the market understands why their product is better than anything else out there and it meets a specific need that has been unmet to date with the current technology or products out on the market. The product is very broadly defined. This certainly can include software, um, so things that you can't necessarily hold, but it can also be physical products, but runs the gambit. When we talk mostly about these types of products that are needed in the market, to a large extent, we're talking about business to business sales, where businesses need some type of new product or device and that it improves their performance at their own com- at the customer's company. So increases their revenue or it decreases their expense. Those are the two primary levers that we see uh, motivating a customer to buy. And this is regardless of whether or not you are enterprise software or you're a medical device. What differentiates between all of the different categories is the amount of money it takes to get to a finalized product and into the market and the time period, the length of time to make a sale. All of these things are highly variable and quite uncertain. The market really does drive whether or not you have a viable product. Is there a range in terms of the amount of investment that angel investors make? It's quite broad. 
Some angel investors make very small investments of five to ten thousand dollars in a company. We also have super angels that are, for lack of better terminology, nearly a family office and will invest several million dollars in a particular company and many of those. One of the things that is important as an angel investor is that you diversify your portfolio because it's so high risk that you know the majority of young companies starting out uh, don't make it. You need to diversify your portfolio so that you have a lot of companies that you are have in this particular high risk range, knowing that a number of them won't make it. You need to have the companies so that you average out to an acceptable return. So we usually recommend that people have a minimum of 10 to 20 companies in their portfolio so that they can take, excuse me, they can look at the average return that they could achieve for all of those companies. And you're highlighting the importance of having a diverse portfolio because like you're mentioning, a lot or even most new companies don't make it. Do you know some examples of reasons why new companies don't make it? There's been a uh, CB Insights study that looked at why companies fail. And then Bill Ross did a sort of reverse on his own portfolio and asked the question, why do companies succeed? And interestingly enough, in both cases, it was market. So the market, whether or not you have hit the right key with the market as to what the market needs and your product or services clearly meet the market pain that is out there and solve that issue for the market better than anybody else in the competition. It may be merely that you are multiples lower. You have a product, um, some type of materials, but it can be made at a tenth of the cost of existing materials. That's interesting to customers because it lowers their overall cost themselves for the, the operating of their business. Software does the same thing, but ultimately what the market is demanding is that you're providing a product that meets their need in a manner in which they increase their own profitability by utilizing your products. You are based in the Pacific Northwest. Are there any trends that you've seen in terms of the types of companies that are starting in this region? Well, we certainly have a reflection that is created by having two giant companies of Microsoft and Amazon here. So we do see a considerable amount of activity and software, enterprise-oriented related software. We see a lot of AI, artificial intelligence, going on in this area. One of the other attributes that we see quite a bit because of the University of Washington and the very large medical complex and facilities that we have that make up the University of Washington Medical School, we do see a number of medical devices, medical processes that are coming out of the University of Washington. Um, and then we have other universities within the state that influence the companies that settle, generally will settle around the Seattle area, just because this is where most of the majority of the money is for the state of Washington. And when you are looking at determining whether to invest in a company or not, are there examples of metrics that you think about, that you look at? Absolutely. There's no question about it. We look at a variety of different metrics. We, at a very high level, you can think of this as a three-legged stool, and those the three legs are team, technology, and market. And then you drill down within those three sort of hierarchical levels and you're now looking at you know the go-to-markets plan you're looking at the financials 
you're digging deeper into the intellectual property. You're taking and looking at all these different pieces. So when we analyze a company at Sea Change, we use a collaborative investment model. And we will collectively, if a company actually goes to the point of an investment memo and recommendation for investment, we've probably spent you know close to 300 hours collectively on analyzing the company, meeting with the company, but doing a lot of our own internal research into IRR, the market structure, how what trends are in the market, what is the exit potential, uh, lots of different areas that we'll look at. And it's all of those different factors that you have to weigh together of making a determination of whether or not you believe this company has a greater chance of success than the other, you know, 50 companies that you've been looking at. And that's really, it really is a matter of which are the greatest likelihoods of success. And that's what we're looking for. You're a managing partner at Sea Change Fund. Can you talk about what Sea Change Fund is? My background, I've been an investor for a little over 20 years now. I started out as an investor, as an angel investor in 1999, then soon transitioned to doing a lot of work in helping educate and provide knowledge to individuals on angel investing. I was at Kauffman Foundation. I've lectured and worked around the world on these topics. And then I had a chance to go down to the Bay Area and start up a venture fund in clean energy. So I've had experience on both sides, both as an angel investor and as a venture capitalist. What I liked about the venture capital world was the full-time management, the attention to the companies within the portfolio, the detailed process of analysis, the working together to identify the value proposition for the company, and then really helping that company grow as a true partner, being there for them. Those were attributes I really liked. I did not particularly believe in the unicorn-only approach for investing, because I don't think the statistics bear that out. But then what I liked about the angel side of the picture was that this is a group of really smart people. And if organized properly and managed properly of, you know, this is the next step we're doing. These are the section that we're talking about here. Here's how you develop your questions. Lots of training and education. That intelligence of that room is really dynamic um, and extremely important to leverage. And so what we're doing with our collaborative model is that we are taking that recognition of full-time management and an operation that looks and feels very much like a venture fund, but we are leveraging the collaboration of all these really smart people who are all the investors in the fund. So we are made up of a collective of investors that have already put their money in, upfront. So when we make a decision to make an investment, I write a single check into the company. But we work together on growing the portfolio and people will provide their time, their expertise, not only in the diligence process, but afterwards, if we lead and we take a board seat, then we carefully select the individual we feel is most aligned with the interests of the company and they become the representative for the fund. So we have what I feel is a unique model that bridges the gap between these two traditional, more individual angels making their own individual decisions and the VC with the highly focused on large unicorn and large deals. And we're bridging the gap and picking up what is really statistically most of the good deals because most companies exit by acquisition. They exit between 50 and $100 million dollars. 
And if you can stay within a company that has an efficient capital um, requirements to profitability, you can make very handsome returns all day long using that model. So you're mentioning your being the bridge between those two approaches, Angel and the BC. And one thing you mentioned a few couple of times was that you don't just focus on the unicorn only approach. Can you explain what the unicorn means? Unicorn is looking for those companies that have a or or have the potential to have a billion dollar market cap. And those companies are few and far between. If you look statistically at the number of companies that become unicorns, it's a small fraction of the overall companies that start on any particular day in the time continuum. What we do also have out there are a lot of companies that are successful companies that are acquired by these giants for the 50 to $100 million price range that because of the size of the companies buying them sometimes doesn't even make it into a reporting requirement. And they will buy these companies all day long at a price that is highly lucrative for the investors and the entrepreneurs because you've been very efficient in the capital utilization. You've been very careful to identify and stay within the markets that have good IRR returns and it's a growing market. So if you do that, then to use the baseball analogy, you're hitting a lot of doubles and triples. And I'm very happy to do that all day long um, than waiting for a single home run. So that's our model. It has borne out for us far as our initial funds have had very good return because I think that we take this a little bit different approach to investing and follow the statistics rather than following just the general venture approach of let's go for the biggest company that can have these billion dollar valuations. Earlier, you mentioned you've been an investor for 20 years and you started in 1999 as an angel investor. Do you remember some of your early investments? Yes. <laughs> My very, very earliest first investment was in a company called InSpa. They're still in business around here, but it's no longer in the structure in which I will ever see a return, unfortunately. They were They've struggled in, in getting to an overall profitability. And eventually the woman who started it, um, who had exited for a while, had, came back about a year or so ago and bought the company back so that she can continue operating and running it. Uh, she still believes in the mission she started with. That was actually my very first investment in 1999. So not, not a winner. <laughs> what was the domain of the company? It's very female oriented. It is sort of a, a affordable day spa. And they're, they are in various locations of shopping malls and things like that. And it's not outrageous prices where you're paying $200 for a massage uh, and so forth. It's reasonable prices, well-paid employees so that you get a quality product and it's a quick in and out type of thing, but it's giving sort of the everyday person the opportunity to have, you could stop after work on the way home and 45 minutes later, you're walking out you know, with some improvement that is making you feel a whole lot better about yourself. That's a interesting mission. I think it's kind of cool. Yeah, it is. Are there any learnings that you had at the beginning that you're like, I'm for sure not going to do this again <laughs> or something like that? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. I pay a lot of attention to financials. 
I mean, you know, it would take me half a day to list all the learnings I've had in the last 20 years. I don't think you can ever underscore enough understanding the financial statements of a company. The financials tell the story of the company as much as any written document, and sometimes even more. It tells you where they plan to spend, when they plan to hire, where they are putting their efforts, what they believe is a reasonable margin on the product. There's all sorts of information that you can get out of the financials if they're properly done and they have good assumptions listed. That is a tremendously important piece. I think I've learned that through the years, and now I feel very comfortable with financials. I can dig around and look for all sorts of little things here and there that give me some very vital information. The other thing is really understanding their go-to-market strategy. Need Even though you know at first investment, the company um, is still finishing out their product, they need to, one, have already validated the market, that the market actually wants what they're building. That's a sound thinking for an entrepreneur, even if they aren't getting any outside money. Don't build it unless somebody actually wants to buy it. And you need to find that out as early as possible. So that's so that go-to-market strategy, how they plan to approach the market, the length of time they think it's going to take for sales is always miscalculated by entrepreneurs. And wrapped up in that is their calculation of how much money they need to get to certain milestones. And I've learned that a long time ago that they're never right. They're always overly optimistic. We want our entrepreneurs to be optimistic and to be full of energy and belief in themselves and their company and their product, which is great. Uh, I think that investors in part have a role to bring a little bit of a reality check into that to help them recognize, you know, what, how it really happens out there. Pricing is extremely important. And learning and understanding how to price products is a vital and it's a very challenging kind of task or or process to go through. It's not for doing in an afternoon. Um, It takes weeks and weeks of information and analysis and so forth to try to find the right price. Because you're never, you can always go down, but you're not going to be able to go up. Uh, And leaving money on the table is pretty bad. And then, of course, the team. You know, it's really important to meet with the team, interact with the team, uh, see how they think, uh, how they respond to questions, how they interact with one another. And those are all really important, those dynamics, the culture. How is that, you know, what does it look like? Um, What does it feel like? Is this a place that everybody's smiling and looks excited about what they're doing? That's great. If it looks like people are antagonistic toward one another and it's not a positive culture, that's a bad sign. So there's lots of different things. And do you normally do that by visiting the company for a few days or things like that? Always do that by visiting with the company. Absolutely. And trying to meet as many of the folks as we can, because we often invest in, you know, things that have a a science aspect to them, a technology aspect to them. You've always got the engineers the technology geeks type of folks that we want to talk to and meet and get their take on things. So the time you spend with the staff is certainly not as long as you spend with the CEO and other C-level people, but you do want to have the interaction. You want to walk around the office. You want to see what it looks like, kick the tires a little bit, so to speak, and see how things are running. 
And if you decide to invest in a company, are you continuously you know, giving them advice and guidance or just following up on certain things? So this is where you see a big difference between venture and angels. Angels, typically, the majority of them are very passive, non-active investors. The exceptions are when, you know, it's a clearly an angel investor who has unique characteristics and experiences or knowledge that's vital to the company and they are willing and interested in spending time, they can then become an advisor or even on the board. But the majority of the time, that is not the case. And in part, it's because angels put in much smaller amounts, so they don't have the ability to dictate engagement. Whereas for venture, and this is the part that I believe is a value for venture, is that because of the size of the investment you're making, You do have a right to a board seat or a board observer, board seat, particularly if you're leading the round, and certainly at the very least management rights and information rights, uh, so that you can get that information. You do have the right to sit down with the company on a regular basis, talk through things, see how you can be helpful. We always end the conversation with our companies by saying, what is it we can do for you? How do we become better investors for you? How do we help you move towards success? Those are really important words to say to young companies because you want to be a partner with them. I don't want them to think that somehow we're adversarial. We would have never invested in them if we felt that we were going to be in that kind of situation. So yes, it's very important. And that's the venture side, part of the venture side of sea change. Before we finish, one last question that I like to ask the guests of the show is if they have any advice in general that they would give to young professionals? It can be, you know, about career, a business, or about life. Is there anything that that you would like to say to young professionals? If somebody has a yearning, a real desire to try to do something, their own company, they've got a what they believe is a brilliant idea that has been validated by a lot of conversation with others that They believe they've got something. When you're young, you have greater flexibility. You don't necessarily have mortgages. You don't necessarily have family. You have greater flexibility in who you are accountable to on a personal basis. And it can be a wonderful time to try to start your own company. I would encourage them that if they are interested in doing something like that, that they surround themselves with really strong advisors and mentors. It takes a village to raise a child, and that's what you're doing when you're growing a company. So it's a lot of people that need to help you and be open, be coachable, be willing to listen to the advice that's being provided to you. It doesn't mean you go whipping back and forth depending on who you're talking to. It means that you listen attentively, you digest, you internalize all the different things that are told to you, and you make the decision that makes the most sense for your company if that's what you want to do. But I think it's really tough for people when they get into their 30s and 40s, particularly into their 40s, and they have kids, they have demands like that. Some people are lucky enough to have disposable income that allows them to take the time to start a company. But if you're going to do it, you just validate you've got a great product on a great, great opportunity, and then do it and seek out as much help and support as you can find anywhere it will always be valuable to you. Don't do it on your own. Well, Susan, thank you so much for coming on the show. It's been great talking to you. 
Oh, and you as well. Thank you. I really appreciate being able to talk to you and go through all these things. This is a passion of mine. After 20 years, I still get excited every day about looking at companies and supporting companies. And it really makes your life much richer. Thank you. Thank you. 